If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. And today we're going to be in verses 1 through 17. And what will be the turning point of the entire book. So Esther 4, 1 through 17. And the title of this sermon is A Better King and Mediator. While I won't do a full review of the book up to this point, it is vital for today's text to understand the extent of the peril that the people of God are in. Uh, Last week, we learned that Haman, the Agagite, had manipulated King Ahasuerus into effectively signing a death warrant for all of the Jews in the entire kingdom. After rolling the poor, which are like modern dice, A date was set for the genocide, but we learned also that God was in control of this. The date was set for 12 months away. So what next? What do you do if you're a part of God's people? What do you do when death is staring you in the face? What do you do? Let's dive into our text. Esther 4, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows 
whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Fair warning, this episode of Esther ends in a cliffhanger. It's like one of those episodes of Lost or 24 where there's an intense buildup and then they just leave you there, having to come back to the next episode to see how everything resolves. That's chapter 4 of Esther. But what we will see here is a transformation of our main human character, Esther herself. So far in this book, we've seen her be pretty passive, obeying commands given by Mordecai, her cousin. But look at how chapter 4 ends. Verse 17. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In this chapter, we'll see Mordecai's last command, and Esther move from passive to firm in her identity. So, how did she get there? Let's start with Mordecai and his response to the horrible decree. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai hears about the decree. Can you imagine that? You hear that all of God's people are going to be killed, and it's your fault. Can you imagine how Mordecai must have felt? You're the one who, in a normally tolerant kingdom, gave Haman an opportunity to extinguish all of your friends and family throughout the entire empire. Now, no comment one way or the other here on whether Mordecai was right or wrong and not bowing. But I do want to comment on the nature of sin in general. Sin never just affects us as individuals. There's always a communal cost to our families, to our churches, and our friends. What Mordecai did affected all of God's people throughout the entire kingdom. And in that, I can't help but think of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He sinned, and because he was our representative, the sentence of death spread to all men. Romans chapter 5 is one of the clearest places in all of Scripture where this is taught. So, Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes into the middle of the city to cry. And this isn't a fashion statement. I know 
It's popular today to have torn clothes or to even buy jeans with holes already in them. That's not what's going on here. Tearing clothes and and putting on sackcloth and ashes was a public statement of grief and repentance, of deep mourning and distress. I just want to stop here for a second and acknowledge that this is an appropriate response for a Christian. It's not like Mordecai doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. We'll see in just a moment that he certainly does. And yet, there he is expressing public grief, full of emotion. He's not concealing anything. So often, we think that people with real faith in God are just rock solid with no emotion, almost stoic in the midst of peril. Not at all. Mordecai, as well as countless others in Scripture, both have faith in God and express deep distress paired with grief. We have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this expression. It's called Lamentations. I say that to say it's okay to grieve as a Christian. It's okay to let your guard down and allow others to know that you're not okay. This isn't a lack of trust in God. If you're grieving or in the midst of distress, does your community know it? This is one of many places where the church is such a gift, brothers and sisters. In the midst of grief, The church is uniquely equipped to come around you and to minister to you with the love of Christ. This is the value of being in a missional community where you can can know and be known by brothers and sisters in this church who can truly weep with you and care for you. So that's what Mordecai is doing. And notice where he's doing this. In the midst of the city, it says. In the midst of the city. Verse 2 makes it clear that he can't go into the king's gate like this. He's no longer clocked in at city hall, is he? He's firmly an outsider. Grieving. Repenting. And while commentators don't all agree on this, I believe he's finally seeking God through prayer. Even though it's not mentioned in the text. Then we're told that this kind of thing is happening all over the kingdom, not just in Susa. God's people in sackcloth and ashes, fasting, weeping, lamenting, also presumably crying out to God for help. Man, if only God had known that this was coming, he could have done something. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If only God had known. Friends, He does. And he did. 
Before the problem was in place, God had already started the gears turning to bring about the solution. Do you see that? God isn't just anxiously waiting in heaven, just just hoping that all things work out. He's sovereign. And he has declared the end from the beginning. Mordecai and God's people are starting to realize this. And they're rightly turning to him in dependence. So, if, if that's our first scene, the video screen fades out and reopens in quite another setting. Inside the palace with Esther. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So if Mordecai and the rest of God's people are pictured as outsiders in verses 1 through 3, Esther is immediately portrayed as the consummate insider here. She's clueless to the plight of God's people. At this point, she's been living in the palace for about five years and still hasn't identified as a Jew. She doesn't have any real connection with the people of God. She's isolated and therefore doesn't know how to help. She hears that Mordecai is out in the town square making a scene And look at her well-meaning but unhelpful solution. Get him a new wardrobe. That'll help. Again, the author's wanting us to see just how much a part of the empire Esther is at this point. She's superficial. Only concerned with outward appearance. Mordecai's sad? Send him a new suit. She doesn't even ask why he's sad. Maybe, instead of trying to fix him, she should have been asking questions and listening. This is good advice for us husbands in the room. How often do we try to fix our wives when they really just need us to listen? That's for another sermon. But here's the point. She's completely isolated from God's people. So much so that she doesn't even understand what's going on. Brothers and sisters, being meaningfully connected to God's people, the church, is vital to following God. If you don't know what's going on with God's people, you'll never know how to minister to them in an unsuperficial way. There are about 47 one another's in the New Testament. In order to actually do them, you can't be isolated from the church. Love one another. How can you do that if you don't actually know the people you're called to love? Bear one another's burdens. How can you bear burdens that you're completely unaware of? Know God's people. Be known by God's people. Christian community is vital for a healthy spiritual life. Esther is isolated and not identifying with God's people. So Mordecai sends the clothes back. Verses 5 through 8. 
Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. As a side note, this new character that's introduced into the story, Hathak, this guy's interesting to me. There's, there's no inclination at all that he's part of God's covenant people. Yet, he acts as a messenger in this important exchange. Do you see that? And God does this kind of thing all the time. He, he can and does use all kinds of different people, both those in the household of faith and those outside of it, to accomplish his purposes. They're completely unaware of God's plans, but he uses them. This is yet another glimpse into God's sovereignty. He's, he's in control even of a non-believing eunuch that functions as a confidential messenger. So, Esther finally sends a question instead of a new suit through Hathak. Hathak faithfully relays the message. Mordecai sends back a response of his own with extreme detail. He explains all that's happened, including the sum of money that's been promised to the king, as well as a flyer of the dreaded decree. Then, look at the end of verse 8. This is huge. He commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. Do you see that? First, this will be the last command that Mordecai makes of Esther in the whole book. Second, he wants Esther to beg and plead on behalf of her people. He's finally calling her to identify with God's people. Remember, she's the only one in the story with two names. Esther, her pagan name, and Hadassah, her Jewish name. She has a choice to make here. Which identity will she choose? Will she try to continue to live relatively comfortably in the empire, keeping her true identity hidden? Or will she beg and plead on behalf of her people, the people of God? And this is a great question for us this morning. Have you effectively kept your Christian identity hidden in your neighborhood? in your workplace, around town. I mean, your neighbors may know that you go to church because they see your car pull out each Sunday morning. But do they really know that you're a real Christian, one of those people, that you really believe the gospel and fully identify as part of God's people? Do they know? I love what Kevin DeYoung says here. He says that genuine private faith will always face a public test. Genuine private faith will always face a public test. 
In other words, if your faith is genuine, you will come to a time and place where that faith is going to be tested publicly. What will you do in that moment? A decision at work. A night out with the guys or girls. A moment with your sports team. For you students in the room. A moment of peer pressure. What will you do in that moment? If your faith is genuine, you'll have a decision to make. Whether or not to publicly identify with God's people. And I love what happens next. Esther immediately says, yes, I'm ready to take the hill for God. Let's go. No, that's not what happens at all. And that's why I find this encouraging. It's real. Look at verses 9 through 11. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther has serious questions. Hey, Mordecai, you're suggesting that I go to the king, identify with God's people, and plead for them? Easy for you to say. Everyone, including you, Mordecai, everyone knows that you don't just go into the king's presence unsummoned. He has guards all around him, almost always. If you go in there, They'll literally cut your head off with an axe. Unless the king signals them with his golden scepter not to. And he's not known for being the gracious, merciful type. Plus, he hasn't called for me in over a month. I'm not sure that I'm the right person for the job. Maybe you've been there before. You think that that God might be calling you to something. You come up with every reason why you're not the right person or why someone else should do it. Well, you're in good company. This is what's going on with Esther in this moment. She doesn't immediately say yes. She hesitates and communicates the consequences. Well, Mordecai's response And the next two verses are definitely the most famous verses in the whole book. And for a good reason. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what he says to to her. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see what he's saying? This is beautiful. First, just just to clear things up, this isn't Mordecai making a threat against Esther. It's not as if he's saying, do this or else. I know a guy. No. He's saying, 
Esther, you might feel like you're safe inside the palace, but you're actually not. You will be found out at some point. You're kind of in a bad spot either way. Either you can risk going into the king and possibly die, or you cannot go into the king and certainly die, along with all the other Jews. Either way, you've got real difficulty. Second, Mordecai preaches the gospel to Esther. What in the world am I talking about? Follow this. Christopher Ash so helpfully walks through this line of thought in his commentary on Esther. Look, look what Mordecai says in verse 14. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Is Mordecai aware of some other plot to help save the Jews? Does he know of another assassination attempt? Has he heard an audible voice from heaven? No. He knows and believes the promises of God. Mordecai knows that God made a covenant with Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel. What was that promise? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis 12. Genesis 15, God shows up again and promises this to Abraham. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Do you see that? God promised Abraham that he would give him offspring and that they'd be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that they'd be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If God's people are annihilated, can that promise be true? No. This isn't wishful thinking. Mordecai is banking on the covenant promises of God. And look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, 
Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see it? Paul says that, that in the promise that Mordecai is banking on, God was preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Mordecai is believing and preaching the gospel to Esther here. But there's another side to this too. Look at the next part of verse 14. He tells her, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Again, this isn't a death threat from Mordecai. He's saying there's another side to God's promise in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors, I will curse. In other words, Esther, if you choose not to identify with God's people, you'll be putting yourself under God's judgment. Christopher Ashe writes this. He says, to the visible eye, the language of the empire, the covenant people will be annihilated and others will live. But to the eye of faith, the covenant people will be delivered and those who will not identify with them will be destroyed. In one of the strangest paradoxes of the gospel, the only safe place to be is with the people whose existence is threatened. Amen. So, in faith, Mordecai is saying, God's going to sovereignly do something. You have a choice whether or not to identify with God's people who are going to be saved somehow. And then... The most famous line in the book, the end of verse 14. So he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is great. And it's not a guilt trip either. I want us to see this. It's not, hey, Esther, if you don't do something, people are going to die. Hey, if, if you don't do something, it's all on you, Esther. Hey, you better do something because it's all on you, Esther. No, that's a horrible and burdensome way to manipulate someone into doing something. Instead, this is Mordecai's word to Esther. Hey, Esther, God is going to do something amazing here. Do you want to play a part in it? Look, Esther, God has placed you where you are for a reason. It's time to let people know who you are. Is it going to go well? We actually don't know. But there's a time in life to take risk for God and for his people. Do you want to be part of what God's doing? That's the question. So, what will Esther do? Verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is beautiful. Three different times in this book, the story is hinged on a character disobeying authority. Vashti in chapter 1, Mordecai in chapter 3, and now Esther in chapter 4. Ironically, Vashti was banished for not coming into the king's presence, and Esther might be killed for coming into the king's presence. In describing Esther's actions here, one author says it this way, she purposes, she plans, and she prays. From this point, Esther purposes. She decides in her heart that she's going to identify with God's people. And this is a huge shift, a transformational shift, actually. But she doesn't just wing it. She has a plan. We'll see in chapter 5 next week that she prepares a banquet and is incredibly wise in how she talks to the king. So she plans, she purposes, and here she prays. She calls all of God's people to join her in a three-day fast. And while prayer isn't mentioned here, prayer almost always accompanies fasting. It's implied and assumed that they're all crying out to God in dependent prayer, trusting that he alone can save them. And it's here that several commentators point out the connection to Joel chapter 2. So, with Esther 4 in mind, let's read Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Joel chapter 2, 12 through 16. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. It's exactly what we see the people of God doing in this text in Esther 4. Verse 13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Sounds like what Mordecai is doing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? Where have we seen that language before? Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. That's what Esther's doing. Call a solemn, solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his, his room and the bride her chamber. Esther 4 seems to be a mirror of Joel chapter 2. Esther and God's people seem to be turning to him, fasting, weeping, mourning, turning their hearts, calling on God to save them from imminent disaster. They've moved from panic to prayer. And in doing this, see this. There's a real change in Esther. She's heard the gospel preached from Mordecai. She's identified with God's people or decided to. And she's changed. She moves from passive to active. Now, standing up, making decisions, and giving commands. She's now a queen of initiative. In fact, 
13 out of the 14 times that she's called queen in this book come after this transformation. Karen Jobes notes that Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. That's exactly right. When we rightly understand our identities as children of God, it shapes every other identity that we have. Royal positions require stewardship of our actions. And in this, Esther becomes comfortable with whatever outcome God has for her. Do you see that? She says, if I perish, I perish. She's trusting God. Now that we kind of understand this chapter, I want us to finish by once again observing some comparisons and contrasts and then closing with a challenge. First, a comparison. A comparison. Like Jesus, Esther is a mediator. But Jesus is a better high priest and mediator. Jesus is a better high priest and mediator. In the person of Esther, in this text, chapter 4, we're meant to see the comparison between her and Christ. First, what does she do? She tries to cover Mordecai with some superficial clothes. This is the same move that Adam and Eve tried in the garden, by the way. But Christ, as our high priest, atones for our sin and covers us with his righteousness. Look at this. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is a better high priest who has properly covered us with his righteousness. Do you see that? He's also a better mediator. Esther went to the king to mediate on behalf of her people. And 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So understand this. While the people of God didn't deserve the sentence of death in Esther, we do. We've, we've sinned against a holy God and justly deserve death and eternal damnation. Because this is true, we have no right to enter the king's presence at all. We need a mediator to come between God and us to plead on our behalf before the throne. Jesus is that mediator. He covers us with his righteousness. And then he stands before God and he says, look, look, they can come in. I've declared them righteousness. Or I've declared them righteous. I've clothed them in my righteousness. 
He was able to do that because he died in our place. Tim Keller so clearly makes this point by saying, he says, becoming our mediator did not merely require the possibility of his, meaning Jesus's death, but the certainty of it. Esther saved her people in two ways, identification and mediation. Does that remind you of anyone? Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish. He perished so that we might live, so that we might draw near to God. So in light of this mediation, we're second in this text, supposed to see a contrast. Ahasuerus was quite the inaccessible king, wasn't he? By trying to access him, you'd likely have your head cut off. Jesus, on the other hand, is a better king. He's not inaccessible and invites us into his presence because he's a mediator for us. He says this in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're not a Christian today, I'm inviting you. Come to Jesus. Identify with God's people. He will give you rest. He's gracious and accessible so that we can draw near to him with confidence. Not because we're righteous, but because Jesus was. So come to him. Now, in closing, we've seen a, a comparison and a contrast. But in closing, I'd like to just end with a challenge. While I believe the primary goal of this chapter is for us to be eternally grateful for Christ, who's a better king, high priest, and mediator, a secondary application is for us to identify as God's people and to make a difference in this world. While we will probably never stand in front of kings, risking our lives to mediate for all of God's people, each and every one of us are where we are for a reason. You are in your neighborhood and in your family. You are in your job and in this church for a reason. God has given you specific gifts for a reason. Though you, like Esther, may be tempted to think, I'm not the right one for the job. Let me ask you this question. How might God be calling you to courageous faith that glorifies him? How might God be calling you to courageous faith that glorifies him? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's pray.